You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. We are thrilled to welcome you to a two-part podcast special, where we will be bringing together diverse perspectives on crisis simulations and war games in order to discuss what it means to visualize, that is, to represent and imagine strategy. My name is Philippe Cruvenel. And my name is Katerina Berkedal. And we will be your hosts for this two-part podcast special. Today's episode, Wargaming in a Brave New World, will focus on the making of strategy and its visualization through wargaming and crisis simulation exercises in the military, business, and public sector. We now have the pleasure of being joined by Paul Weber, Yuna Wong, and James Fielder. And before going any further, I would like to extend our sincere gratitude to them for sharing their time with us today. I do not feel that it is in any way an exaggeration to call them experts in wargaming and simulations, and I can think of no better guest to explore with us the theme of this first episode, specifically how simulations and wargames work in the contemporary world through their use as tools ranging from training exercises to conflict resolution, but also how they are changing and adapting to an increasingly online environment. Now, I'd like to start off by talking about the fundamentals of wargaming and simulations, especially to introduce some of the concepts we will be addressing today to those among our listeners who may be not as familiar or well acquainted with the subject area. Sometimes, just establishing one's own foundational perspective on a topic can generate its own intriguing and rewarding discussion, which brings us to what may well be the essential starting point for a conversation about contemporary wargaming. A question which I would like Yuna to address before opening up the discussion. Why do we conduct simulations in war games in the first place? Sure, that's a great question, and there's so many reasons for it, but one of the reasons is we don't really have a lot of better tools. So modern wargaming dates back to the Prussians, but when you're trying to face an uncertain future and you don't know what's going to happen, and there's no data, and there are no historical case studies, uh, games still give you maybe one of the still better ways to try to figure out what might happen in an uncertain world and, and just try to help you figure that out. James, would you like to add anything? I would, I'd like to say that the first time team responds to a crisis shouldn't be an actual crisis. And so games give people a chance to practice their strategies and see what works and what doesn't in a simulated environment that's risk-free so they can take these they can try a strategy to that it fails badly, but without actually losing personnel or material in the act of doing so. And then in a training environment, I, like for example, I love uh, doing uh, in-class games at the undergraduate level. You know, it allows students now to practice the material they've learned that they can't really practice in any other way outside of real-world interactions. On the simulation side, we do simulations to try to understand ranges of outcomes. So you create simulations and whether it's for a particular encounter or an entire campaign, and you try to understand dependencies between the different variables involved and what the outcomes are. So you're trying to create, you know, what the realm of the, of the possible is, and to the extent that you can, what the more likely things are and what causes those things to be more likely. On the war game side, we're interested more in why people are making decisions they do and why the decisions that they make influence those outcomes. You know, I look at simulations 
are much more of a, you know, I joke about the Newtonian machine of war. You know, it's about, you know, what happens if you hold the humans constant in the wargaming side? Now you add the humans in, and a lot of times you abstract a lot of those details of, you know, the Newtonian machine of war uh, to get to the point where the humans can understand the risk they're accepting, making decisions, and accept the consequences that result from that. And then you can learn as the game evolves on uh, what the interplay is between the, the perception the players have of what the ground truth is, what they have at their disposal to change that, and why they choose the things they do in order to achieve that outcome they desire. It's a really interesting perspective. What this makes me wonder is, would you say that wargaming and simulation, I mean, of course, it has transformed a lot over the centuries as we've uh, institutionalized these practices, but would you say that it is a natural uh, form of human behavior to try to simulate real world environments? Well, that gets to the whole, if you read some of the literature on sort of the whole nature of play, when you talk about you're playing a war game, you play a war game because as a human, you're trying to come to terms with, if you were to meet the situation in the real world, how would you prepare for it? So I think there's a natural linkage between you play at things to understand them, you rehearse them, you try and teach your children how to become adaptive to things. When we do play at something and we find out something's particularly difficult to deal with, or we need to have a really good understanding of that particular thing because it's particularly impactful, then you want to dig into it with a simulation. The thing I see people do is they try to start with simulation and they want to simulate everything. The overcomplicatedness doesn't add realism or fidelity. You're looking at literature by... Johanna Wazinga, Brian Sutton-Smith, Roger K. Watt, it all goes back to like how play is a primal element in human development. You can't separate man or woman from the player or the play activity. Uh, it's how humans learn how to do things, like mimicking their parents or mimicking their peers or you know, playing sports to... Um, you know, practice in a way predatorial aspects of the human condition. When someone wins and they raise their fists in the air in celebration, that is a very, very primal uh, thing for people to do. And that types into our like long-term evolution that combines uh, play with learning. Yes, I just wanted to underscore all those points. You know, there's play-based therapy for children. There's research on play in animals, right? Where they look at cognitive development and so I, I think there's pushback against the theory that play is for skills development, but it's associated with cognitive development. It's associated with pro-social behavior in children, things. So sometimes when people in the professional world sort of poo-poo this idea that it's sort of for, for kids, you have to realize that kids learn a lot faster than adults. And this is considered central to their learning. So we really shouldn't turn our nose up at play. I think this is a good moment to start talking about the next step of gaming and play, or at least the uh, process of simulating that, which is design objectives. So, Paul, how do the aims of wargaming and simulations affect the design and production choices? If you don't scope the task that you're trying to use wargaming as a tool to do, get a more complicated tool than you otherwise need. And what I found in particular, when you are bringing in people to use the war game tool who aren't war gamers, 
you have to keep it simple. And sometimes to the point where you, you have to really balance losing some of the objectives that you want to, to find out to keep the game tractable. So to me, the important thing is what's the overall objective? What are the questions that I'm trying to answer to achieve that objective? And then specifically, what are the gameplay elements the players need to engage in to inform those questions? And from there, I developed the schema for how I'm going to map the game world into those activities so that the players, their agency in the game is directly related to what the purpose of the game is and all the superfluous stuff is left out. The other thing I do is when I look at those questions, I look at how much time do the players have playing. If it's a three-day event, you know, you're not really going to have more than about five hours a day of player engagement. So you've got 15 hours. If you've got 15 questions, that's an hour per question. You're just not going to get a lot of player engagement to answer those questions. So better to have four, five, six questions so that there's two hours plus of gameplay committed to each one of those questions. That's the kind of the rubric I use. It's time, it's objectives, it's questions, mapping those into player activities. I think other relevant questions are, is it classified? How many people are coming? (laughs) When do you want it by? Because what I like to do is to sort of start with constraints and say, if if you need it in a month, right, this is what's going to be possible you don't know how many people are coming, then maybe you don't need a war game. You need a workshop of something. If it's classified, right, then there's, we're not going to do anything with online things. We're just not because we can't. So you start out with the questions that remove your options because you're trying to narrow it as quickly as possible. James, would you like to add your uh, spin on this? I first start with, if I'm designing either a classroom game or an organizational game, what's the objective? What is it that I'm trying to measure? You, everything about the game's design should go back to that. And ideally, it's only one objective. Maybe one broad objective and three like sub-hypotheses, if you will. But it should be very focused and very tightly scoped. And I'm often working with shorter deadlines. Like in a class, I might only have one period to do it. And some organizations, maybe just a single day. In addition, I follow board game designer Jim Dunnigan's advice. Keep it simple and plagiarize. And by plagiarize, I know we're all academics here. We're like, oh, we can't do that. It means think about what the objective is and think if, are there already games that exist that have mechanics, core mechanics that align with what you're trying to measure? So then I'll go to my Tower of Power over here or go to Board Game Geek and sort of look through existing games. And often I'll take three or four games and take mechanics from all of those and put them together. So I'm not trying to build something bespoke and from the ground up that's more work than necessary. Yeah, I think there's uh, also something to be said here for an emergent game behavior, right? Because sometimes you don't even know what the final aspect of a game is going to be until you actually sit down and start playing it. And then some mechanics will become, you know, an evident translation of the objectives that you have, but others won't. And sometimes I think, you know, at least when I uh, design and produce games, the players will come up with the better alternatives for mechanics that better represent the design objectives and aims. I also think this is a very good uh, place to move on to our final question of the first part of this podcast. And this is one that speaks to me personally, because 
you know, in the academic setting, this is always a question that gets brought up. And James, I would like to ask you this question first. Should we look to war games and simulations as platforms for experimentation? 100%. Absolutely. Like, I'm, this is where I'm going to hold up my Dungeon Master's Guide 5th Edition and wave like an old country preacher and say games are, in my professional assessment, the perfect avenue for measuring human behavior and doing human behavior experiments. Also working off of a recent uh, unpublished paper by Lint Greenberg, uh, Pauli, and Schneider, Wargaming for Political Science Research. I think there's a groundswell of activity in uh, at least social sciences to break forward and start using war games as experiments alongside statistical analysis, other, other quantitative methods and other qualitative methods. And also there's Andrew Reddy at UC Berkeley who's uh, doing nuclear deterrence uh, games analysis, getting different teams, moderating the teams, finding the outcomes of that game, and then seeing, well, how similar are the outcomes from all these different teams? Of event? How much can we generalize it and how much of a Venn diagram does it build? I know I'm probably going to get trouble and maybe some of the war game and scientific community, but we should not leave gaming out of the equation when it comes to experimentation. One of the primary things I use gaming for is as an experimental sort of a cauldron to throw technology opportunities in and see which ones the players reach in and grab. So from the point of view of trying to inform what are the aspects of new technologies that make it desirable. We tend to focus in experimentation on technology on the artifact, making sure the gizmo works when what prevents the diffusion of innovation, if you go back to Everett Rogers, into an organization is much more the culture of the organization. So one of the things I'm trying to get people to understand Wargaming provides is this opportunity for people to experience what it is a new technology brings to the table so they can see how it culturally is acceptable or not and how to bring people in to help them shift their cultural viewpoint to where they see why making other changes in how they do business is worth it given the benefits that this new technology will bring. So wargaming it out provides a venue where they can experiment with this and see if the juice is worth the squeeze. So that's a little bit different form of experimentation. And I would add that you can use it to theorize about topics that don't exist yet. So for example, I've used matrix games before to look at deterrence and escalation implications of autonomous systems and AI. So those are futuristic systems that don't exist war games provide a way to sort of try to tease out potential uh, dynamics. You know, I actually had the pleasure of participating in these games. Stanford also had a role in uh, organizing them. And just for listeners who may be wondering how such a game might work as an experiment, the way it worked for us was that they would set us up in these individual cells which would be composed of supposedly uh, state figures, let's say a state council. And the same scenario would be brought uh, forwards to each one of these cells regarding a conflict between our state and another state. But for each one of these, a one or two factors would be changed. And we would always have the option of responding to the conflict using nuclear weapons or perhaps not using nuclear weapons. 
And I think using these kinds of sample designs has a backdrop to experimentation, at least for someone who studies statistics like myself, is actually a completely underrated way of integrating human behavior into experiments. I'm going to be the downer and some real caution on that. I know the level of enthusiasm and excitement for people to do that is very large, but um, sometimes for the purposes of data collection, games are abstracted to simplified and abstracted to a level that miss a lot of the important context behind the decision making. And then the other part is one of the problems is that you may not be measuring learning that goes on between games. So the problem of repeated gameplay that they're not sort of independent runs of a model because humans are learning and adapting and trying new things and acclimate and getting used to each other and things will vary in ways that are not measurable. So omitted variable bias is probably the killing fields for anyone trying to attempt statistical implications from those types of you know, sort of uh, repeated war games. I think these are excellent points. You know, uh, The environment will always introduce its own important biases that we must be aware of, which is actually a great place to move on to the second part of our podcasting. Now, I'd like to shift the focus of our conversation a bit from the theory of wargaming and simulation production design to the specific contemporary challenges we are facing, not just as a result of COVID. I think there is an argument, but please disagree with me if needed, that a pandemic just accelerated an already existing and increasing application of online resources to simulate or even replace personal environments, whether for learning, experimenting, or gaming. To that end, Paul, Do you think there are benefits to these new online environments over their physical counterparts? There definitely are advantages, but there's definitely disadvantages. And the one caveat I'll put up front is that online gaming is not a replacement for face-to-face gaming. I don't think there will ever be a time when we'll just say, you know what, we don't need to do any more face-to-face gaming. We can do it all online. So the aesthetic of people gathered around a table, looking each other in the eye, reaching for a piece, physically moving something, there's an interactivity there that you can't get online. That said, what you can do online is a, I don't want to say a rehearsal, because there are actual uh, things you can do online with regard to uh, education. If you're trying to teach somebody something through gaming, doing it online can be a way to reach a wider audience and get more perspectives in to that educational environment than you can if everyone has to be present. Some of the games I do have been face-to-face. What I found was by opening it up to online, we had a much broader group of people and a lot more diversity in who could participate. The other issue is the technology you use to do the online gaming. You know, I've worked with Jim Starrett in some of his experiments and some of the activities he's done, looking at putting together different combinations of platforms, you know, whether it's Vassal and Discord or Tabletop Simulator and Blackboard, or he tried all these different combinations and there's pros and cons to each one. And I'm not sure there was a winner in all categories. The Vassal is a virtual board game piece of software that lets you basically play a board game online graphically. That seemed to be the most intuitive for people who were war gamers 
but weren't well versed in technology. And then using something like Discord, which is a online chat and information sharing environment or platform, that seemed to go along pretty well. On the professional end, we're trying to leverage uh, LVC, live virtual constructive virtual environments, in a way similar to Tabletop Simulator, but going beyond having a virtual game table to having the virtual set of resources around the game table. So there's a room you're in or a set of rooms you're in with the game table in it, but with other virtual computers where you can go and access information online, PowerPoints and various pieces of information you can have and bring up that you can post on the walls, planning tools, things you can do. And the big thing there that we see these virtual environments bringing is a reproducibility that you don't necessarily have as easily in a face-to-face game where you can basically everything that happens in the virtual environment, you can record and you can play it back and you can make all the artifacts available in these rooms after the fact. So where the interface in the cycle of research between the analysis side and the wargaming side One of the biggest issues in completing that part of the cycle is in passing information back and forth between those two groups of people because they tend not to be co-resident. We're spread out the country. So how do you get it so that that information is available for people when they need it? And that's where we see moving from the online as a means to play the game together when you're not physically together up to a whole way of information management related to the games. So, but again, not a replacement for face-to-face, a supplement to it in many ways, a preparation. So after you do that, you have the face-to-face game as sort of the capstone of those events. So an alternative, different and better in some ways, but insufficient in others. Right. I would say eventually we're going to go to a point where, you know, there's all these, all these different tools, just like there's all these game design and mechanic options when you're putting together a game design, as you put together a campaign of wargaming and analysis through a campaign through the cycle of assessment, these online tools are gonna become increasingly important to that whole enterprise. James, would you like to add anything to this? Uh, Yes, largely aligns with what Paul said. And the good news is that for both educational purposes, the university level and professional purposes, I do appreciate how it's easy to get online players together. Just a handful of simple and free tools. It's very easy to put a game together. Okay, easy, I'll put that in air quotes. But for example, a classroom game I just ran this past spring, just using Google Docs, which is free for students, Discord, which is free, and Zoom, which the students don't have to pay for as long as I'm the one running the account. I could just do a theater of the mind game. We did a zombie apocalypse uh, game where I was the director not putting in message traffic live in Discord and the students were responding to it. You think of war gaming as of having a map and pieces. So there was none of that. It was all just following the message traffic. So it was a very, at least from my perspective, simple to run. Um, Also from entertainment standpoint and corporate standpoint, I've done both for fun games and organizational games just using those simple tools. And it's been actually very fun. Something I do have to be cognizant about more so in the educational environment, though, is the digital divide is still somewhat of a thing and that I will have students 
who don't have the best laptop or they have to play entirely on their phone because they don't even have a laptop. So I had to be cognizant on how easily they can access it. For good, for ill, I assume that when I'm working with a, a corporate or organizational client, that the digital divide has already been fixed at that level. But that brings up other cultural artifacts regarding internet access that are probably beyond the scope of today's interview. I, I will also just make a general observation. It seems that as long as humans have had computers, there's really been this unrealized vision of the world where you could entirely replicate the real world in the virtual. And we keep striving for it. It's almost like, you know, those cartoons where there's a mule and then you have a fishing pole and a carrot on a stick in front of the mule to get the mule keep moving in that direction. <laughs> But it seems sort of generation after generation, there is theorizing that we will get to that point. And still, it's, it's fascinating. I think long term, it's going to be something we still try to, to get. It's almost like, yes, you know, next generation, like we're almost there. We're almost there. But I think in the you know short term, we will also have to deal with the practicalities of having a virtual space that really cannot live up to real life. Yeah, I think this is also a good moment to address the next question, which I feel like we're already touching on what the challenges of an online environment are. Just to start it off, I think one of the big challenges, which we already mentioned, is that there are attrition rates just to joining an online environment that I don't think we really see that much of in a physical counterpart. James, what do you think? So yeah, in addition to digital divide concerns, like does, does the attendee have access issues or not? That's something I have to think about. I've coined two terms that I haven't written about yet, but you've heard it here at first, <laughs> but second time. I call it surface <laughs> avoidance and surface recognition. I actually start with surface recognition. The problem I have there is I have to, in addition to having my students or my clients play a game, now they have to learn to use a tool to do so. So the more complex that tool is, the more difficult it becomes to get them engaged inside the magic circle where they feel like they're participating. So I think all the tools we've cited so far are, in, in my assessment, tools that the people I work with are familiar with. Like they know how to use Vessel, they know how to use Discord. But even so, even with my class in the spring, I had to have a Discord session so students understood how to use it. So when we started playing, that surface recognition problem was thwarted. The second aspect, the surface avoidance, is people actively not wanting to be online, the Zoom fatigue being a real thing. It takes a lot of cognitive brain power for people to interact in this type of environment. You know, going back to what Paul said about in person, you're seeing more nonverbal communication. You're getting that tactile um, moment handling the pieces. Right now, I'm trying to track all these faces at once and inside, it's actually take, cast, costing me cognitive energy. I'm probably gonna to take a little nap before I teach class today, you know, to be refreshed for it. So <laughs> yeah, trying to convince people that yes, coming back in this online environment is worth your time. And even if you're fed up with being on Zoom and Discord or Slack all day, all day. I would like to just add my own little example, actually, that fits in very nicely with what you're saying about fatigue. Uh, so here at the University of St. Andrews, we actually had the opportunity to run a full semester-long crisis simulation for some of our master's students in international security. And we were really proud, uh, the design team, of setting up this entire environment in MS Teams where you would receive news updates and bulletins, you know, fake news articles and fake news videos 24-7 at any time of the day to really simulate you know, a, a real geopolitical environment that people have to react to. 
one weekend, 40% of our participants wanted to drop out. And all of them said the exact same thing. They just could not keep up with the stream of information that we were giving them. And, you know, this was like the biggest surprise. You know, this was not the first class simulation we had, but we never had big attrition rates like this. And certainly not because there was too much detail or information because this was our first only online uh, simulation. And I think that was one of the considerations that we just never considered that actually in an increasingly online world, the risk of fatigue of just being overwhelmed by detail is a very serious concern. And also the risk of someone's attention being divided because they're trying to multitask in the background. Oh, yes, absolutely. But I, I will add that one of the other things is it's hard to keep people in the flow of the game in these online circumstances where I think it's not just distractions. Uh, when you're limited to the the small frame in your visual field of the computer screen, there's so much more going on around it. And you're only viewing a small piece of whether it's the game board or the number of people involved in the little uh, Brady Bunch uh, Zoom icon layout, that when you're in a room with, even if it's not a lot, but just with other people, you hear them, you see them, uh, you're engaged with them in multiple sensory dimensions, that it's much easier to get people into the flow of the game and that flow state that way than it is via, I'm just simply looking at a computer screen, even if it's a really big one. I think this is a good moment to uh, move on to the very last, but perhaps most exciting question. Yuna, what do you think that the future holds for simulations and war games? I'm going to go with is going to be not that much different from the past hundred years. So I am holding up this book called The Bomb and the Computer, A Crucial History of War Games by Andrew Wilson from 1968. And if you read it, many aspects of this book, because he is describing defense war games, are present today. There's a whole chapter on wargaming in the classroom. There are chapters on the use of computer simulations. And he's talking about what is being explored, right? Nuclear deterrence, battle level marine war games run in Quantico. And honestly, that's not that much different from what we do now. And I know it because in 2019, I did sort of a report that the Marines asked me to do where we went and interviewed a bunch of wargaming centers and I, and I wrote up what they were doing and I was all proud of myself. And then I found that book from 1968 and I read it and like, we actually lost skills in the wargaming. Now we are actually doing very simplified workshop formats without adjudication. I will say that, right, the, the example that you pointed to for those people familiar with that example from Stanford, that's not adjudicated. So we now with a standard practice, around the Department of Defense is sort of the seminar format where you have, here's a scenario, what would be your response? Here's a change in the scenario, what would you be your response? Which is significantly less sophisticated than the Prussians gave us at the inception of Wargaming with Kriegspiel. James, I saw you nodding your head in agreement. Yeah, I have multiple thoughts on this. So first, uh, in complete agreement with uh, Yuna in that you know, tried and tested methods will still carry forward. People might think of these big, grandiose, computerized war games with big, huge monitors everywhere and black lights and 
whatnot, but those are expensive to build and expensive to maintain. But if I throw out a, a modified version of terraforming Mars on a table and get some people playing around it, that's relatively cheap and easy, and I can still be documenting uh, useful data. From a technological standpoint, I, I do see maybe augmented reality kind of playing into games. Then again, that goes back to my other error problem with that's still expensive to build and maintain. So moving forward, it's not maybe so much to technology, but if I see both this surge of interest in building better designed experiments around reward games, and as you know, already talked about, kind of thinking about the methodological pitfalls that you need to avoid and how to account for those type of errors in your writing. I want to see more of that and then combine that with the board game renaissance that we've seen in the entertainment space across the last 10 years. It's seeing this greater appreciation for gaming in society writ large. I think that'll help overcome hesitation in military and corporate environments towards using games as a means for training and experimentation. Perhaps even the use of role-playing games in training settings. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I echo a lot of what was just said. The perspective I'm taking on it is twofold. One is I see the future of wargaming becoming more integrated within this cycle of research. We call it the cycle of assessment here, where I see the technology is not so much to get human on the loop sims as war games where you have these big grandiose sims and the humans are jiggling the rio stats on it there's some of that but you know that gets to the humans are now playing with the newtonian machine of war you're not trying to find out what the human impact in war is so those are two distinct things where the technology can come in there is i think in this lvst environment of collecting disseminating and allowing conversations and more engagement about the information. So you could sort of have, I think, the electronic water fountain between the analysts and the war gamers is much more important in this going forward than a man on the loop giant second coming of JSIM. The, the other thing is in the execution of the game. And in the environment I'm in, the the bookkeeping and and some of the adjudication elements of trying to do these technology intensive games is too time consuming for the time constraints we have so the use of whether it's ai i see you know we've been doing ai in the in the military for years we call them tactical decision aids <laughs> we call them ai now because that's <laughs> sexy but the idea of getting to the hybrid of the face-to-face or in-person games with tools that allow the bookkeeping and some of the administrivia to be done more transparently. And we did a, unfortunately, John Tiller passed away after a short illness a couple months ago, but I worked with him on a game system where we had a PC-based game, which you could play on a touchscreen table, and each player had a tablet where they had the ability to issue orders and keep track of things on their tablet. You could see what was going on on the touchscreen table. You know, you theoretically could have game pieces on the table that would be recognized for where they are or where they, where they were going. You know, you talk about augmented reality. I see it more as the use of the manual game aesthetic 
in a more technologically enhanced way to speed the gameplay to get at the decision making more than say the players sitting around wearing goggles and seeing things in the room that really aren't there. So Paul, do you want to explain what LVC and JSIM are? Uh, LVC <laughs> is the live virtual constructive. You'll hear people in the military, it's second only to AI in acronyms people throw out. And it's the idea that you can have an environment where constructive simulation entities, where you can have live people in a fake space behaving like they're in the submarine, that's the virtual. And then the live would be, you could have an actual ship out at sea or at the pier where the people are actually on their vessel actually doing something. Uh, whether it's a operations center or the experimentation control, what each of those entities are is transparent within the overall exercise environment. So when you talk about an LVC-enabled exercise, rather than having 50 ships all have to get underway, you might have three actual ships, you might have two or three virtual ships, and you might have 30 constructive entities all within the command and control environment. When people talk about LVC, it's that integration across those different types of entities within a command and control environment that they're talking about. JSIM was an old joint simulation system that was about a $2 billion operation where they tried to create the one simulation to rule them all, and it collapsed under its own weight. So it's the apocryphal, ultra-fidelity, ultra-realism simulation and war game all in one that, unfortunately, I don't think we learned our $2 billion worth of lesson from back in the early 2000s. I've been at conferences where the debate broke out over how many billions of dollars that cost. So <laughs> for some of your listeners, when you hear people in the professional gaming space saying, we won't have the money to do a lot of those things computer-wise, like that was the scale that it was attempted at. A little bit of a lesson in humility for war game designers and producers, perhaps. We're military professionals, I think, that <laughs> were, the, were the realists and all that. <laughs> I'm really interested in something that you also mentioned, Yuna, just at the start of this uh, conversation, about the cyclical nature of war game production design. Then that we actually, you know, did go through several iterations of reaching a upper bound of application of war game simulations, you know, not just from a theoretical perspective, but transitioning to the practical. Do you think we're approaching that ceiling anytime soon, or do we still have a few years? No, um, I am pretty depressed at the state of the personnel ah. and the skill sets that would be required to support just what the Department of Defense wants to do in terms of wargaming to the level that we think would be professional. So in 2015, one of Deputy Secretary of Defense, then Bob Work, came out with a memo talking about reinvigorating wargaming. And we asked Peter Perla, who literally wrote the book on wargaming, right? There's Peter Perla's The Art of Wargaming about it. And he's like, yeah, the cycle is about every 10 years. So this introduces lots of problems because right now there are job opportunities and professional opportunities in wargaming. So people can have an opportunity and you can develop people. But there weren't even just a few years ago that many opportunities. So how are you going to maintain a skilled workforce to support the wargaming over time? We don't really have a lot of formal education programs. We do have communities of practice, right? The communities of practice literature talks about how important those are in sort of transmitting 
the implicit knowledge and also making, you know, formalizing some of those knowledge structures. But right now, so I don't, I don't want to offend anyone, but sometimes I do talk about how the professional wargaming community is in the midst of falling off a demographic cliff because we're having some of the most experienced wargamers retire, threaten to retire, semi-retire, you know, so how do you recreate that knowledge set, especially since Gen X millennials, Gen Z did not grow up with Avalon Hill games and many of those uh, commercial war games, not to say that that is something you can't like learn because the professional games are never as complex as those games because professional people who come, I just won't tolerate those things. It's, it's a serious discussion. It doesn't happen automatically. The community really has to try to address that issue long-term. I'd like to add to that in that largely the professional wargaming community is self-taught or learned through mentors. There are very, very few courses out there to actually teach somebody. And even then, you take a short course, they say it's a week or two long, that's just the beginning. Then you have to practice and practice and practice. Um, I saw a figure that said it takes about 2,000 hours to train an amateur war game designer. And that's the whole, not just design the game, but building up all the other skill sets, like the interpersonal skill sets, the adjudication, the data analysis, all that has to come together before they're ready to run their own professional game. And I, I think that the key thing and where I try to get at is up and coming game designers, they need a safe environment to practice that. Too often I see where you have a, I've got a, a mentee I'm trying to, to bring along and they watch me do stuff. But then when it's their turn to do something, they are expected to do it like I do it. I've tried to get opportunities for people through workforce development and things where they can do a project where if it doesn't come off right, that's okay. It's a learning experience. And that to me is the biggest problem we have, at least within the military wargaming training, is we tend to think that if people watch other people do things enough times, then the first time they do it, they'll be just as good without having this growth experience of being a safe to fail environment. So that's where I think we're really creating a dumbing down of the event complexity and the event scope because we keep making it so people who don't want to take the risks of having a full up event because if it's not well received, then they won't get a chance to ever do it again. And that's just terrible. So while we're like bemoaning our, our lives here, I just want to add another real problem for professional wargamers is we don't publish our games. They sort of disappear after their run. So imagine a field where you couldn't read anyone else's research. They just maybe brief you about it or tell you that it was wonderful and it was just wonderfully well-received and innovative and just, just went down, you know, just spectacularly, but you can't get the actual study you can't get the actual data. You can't see how they ran the experiment. And part of it is because of this funding model um, where they're sort of custom built for occasions and then they're never used again. And then the funding model is also based on a game, maybe the resourcing. So you don't have time to write up everything for other wargamers. You need to give the sponsor the insights, you need to write the report for that and you need to execute things. So it's never in the sponsor's interest for you to do this extra work for other wargamers. 
But yes, like we don't have a library. We have sort of legend and myth and rumor about a game that someone ran that we might be able to adapt. And one of the reasons professional wargamers keep going to the commercial games is we lack our own documentation of a lot of things uh, that we do. For example, Thomas Schelling, early pioneer in crisis nuclear war games, died. We don't have his war games, right? We just have his writings about them. And now we can never get his war games. So that's very distressing. Like people do try to publish where they can, but again, there's not a lot of resources put against that. So I think one of the factors for why the knowledge management, like transmitting the knowledge and developing it is so poor because we are oftentimes having to start from scratch. I will echo the other point made about entry into the field. People tend to go, oh, you played hobby games when you were an adolescent, yeah, for you, war game, really, really narrowly restricts who has entry into the field and the other skill sets. We're talking about social sciences. We're talking about, you know, like, like women, right? Like most social scientists now are women. But if you didn't grow up in your adolescence playing those hex encounter games of like the, the battle of, you know, North Africa, they immediately exclude you. So that's intellectually narrowing the field in a, in a way that I think in the long term is self-defeating. What Yuna just said could tie in very nicely with what you said about uh, plagiarism, actually. It's important to reuse other people's work. And I know that I, at least when uh, designing and producing simulations, I always end up drawing from much more talented people's work. Yeah, uh, so I, I have published a classroom game so other people can use it. I, I agree with Dr. Wong that I wish more material were released, even if it's bespoke, even if it's bespoke, so we, at least we can see how it was built. But the other layer that I want to add to that is I say, as a you know academic, I want to re see this game. And I go to get the game and they go, oh, we're sorry, that's classified. You can't look at that. And I'm like, uh, well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know. But the thing is the mechanics, like I understand if the outcomes are might be classified, but generally speaking, the mechanics should be easy to divorce from the material that's making the game classified or the outcomes that are making it classified. You know, on behalf of all of us, thank you very much to you, James, to you, Yuna, to you, Paul, for joining us. I'm really, really happy that we managed to get you all three here. Thanks. This was fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was great. Thank you very, very much for coming, guys. That brings us to the end of our show. We hope you have enjoyed wargaming in a brave new world as much as we have. If you want to find out more about our guests, you can find links to their social media and websites in the episode description. Thank you for listening and do tune in again next week when we will be joined by Aggie Hurst, Alice Koenig, and Aristides Foley who will shine an exploratory light onto the cultural impact of wargaming. If you would like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any platform of your choice just to make sure you don't miss out on a single episode. And please... Do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. It really helps us while helping others to find the show. If you would like to join in on a conversation, you can follow us on social media. Just search for Visualizing War or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. This episode was a collaboration between the Strategy Bridge and Visualizing War projects at the University of St. Andrews and was made possible by the St. Andrews Restarting Interdisciplinary Research Fund. Our team music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zofia Gertin and produced by Katerina Berkadal and Snea Reddy. 
Your host for this episode was Philippe Gruvenel. Thank you for listening.